Hello again, and welcome to Sports in the Waiting Room. I am your host, Chris Russo. Thank you for again, again for joining us as we try to monetize the podcast and try to gain more listenership in that course. It's to the point, actually, where I, you know, I usually record them. I usually record these in the basement of my home in Bergen County, but I am in my uh, fortunate, fortunate enough, we have a, a shore house down the shore today, and I stay down here when I cover Blue Claws games, or when I work on Blue Claws games, rather. And little, little you can't. There's no basement here, and so you have to be closer up to ground level, and that makes you more susceptible to, you know, hearing lawn mowers or etc. I know I'm a little self-conscious when it comes to just background noise anyway. And I'm probably thinking too much about it, but it's just a funny point. And I just, just trying to get my point across that it is very important to me that we do get a podcast out this week and start to get one out every week as much as we possibly can from now on. But I, I thank you for listening. And we start this week with something that's incredibly rare, something that we probably only see on average, this is on average every, I don't know, five, six, seven years uh, over the last century and a half plus of baseball's existence. And that is a perfect game, the 24th perfect game in Major League Baseball history, thrown this week by Domingo Herman, of all people. The fourth ever by a New York Yankee that breaks a tie with the Chicago White Sox. For the most perfect games thrown by a single organization. Now, Don Larson in 1956, David Wells 1998, David Cohn 1999, and Domingo Herman, of all people, in 2023. Not Whitey Ford, not Garrett Cole, not Andy Pettit, Roger Clemens. Put some asterisks on a couple of those names, but uh, but yeah, for all the guys who who have put on the Yankee uniform, those are the guys who are who have done it, and. I think it was Michael Kay who actually said, after a kind of a subpar performance by Herman, even generally speaking, in his first appearance after the perfect game, he said that, you know, that a lot of guys, a lot of imperfect people have thrown perfect games. If you look at the perfect game, as a matter of fact, a lot of, I was surprised to find that Walter Johnson had never thrown a no-hitter. As a matter of fact, and he's got to be one of the best, maybe a top two pitcher ever. It, it's strange because none of those four guys I just mentioned for the Yankees are in the Hall of Fame. None of those first three, for sure. Don Larson didn't have an incredible career necessarily. David Wells and David Cohn had some fine careers, but maybe not Hall of Fame worthy. Maybe we'll see if they get in eventually with with a different committee, but. You also don't think of Domingo Herman that way either, but you think of a lot of pitchers who have thrown perfect games, guys like Philip Humber, guys like Kenny Rogers, guys like Tom Browning, Mike Witt, Len Barker, Charlie Robertson. I got a lot of guys that are not Hall of Fame pitchers. They are imperfect pitchers, but throw a perfect game. A perfect game might be the only thing on this earth that actually is truly perfect. But then again, you separate the art from the artist, as you, you kind of have to do in this case, because Domingo Herman, of course, you know, I was suspended a couple of years ago for domestic violence. And you may think it's strange to bring this up, but I, I, I was thinking it might be important to bring it up in the first place. Uh, and... You know, again, you're separating the art from the artist. It was something that a lot of people were... This was a big conversation at the height of the Me Too movement, I would say, when we talk about actors and, you know, can you separate their actions from their work? And I personally believe you can. And people also can change, not to say that it's... Ex- not to say whatsoever that what he did was excusable, but... It can show the the transformation of some people because, you know, some of the guys I've mentioned have had their uh, have had their own demons. 
you know, besides uh, besides this, whether it was drugs or 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 some or, or some other accusation, and some people can reform. But it was strange and unfortunate enough that reliever Jimmy Cordero, just days after Herman's perfect game, has been suspended for the rest of the season for violating Major League Baseball's domestic violence policy. It's approximately, I believe it was 76 games. That's one of the largest suspensions Major League Baseball has handed out. Of course, Domingo Herman was, because it was the COVID year, was suspended for a full year plus, I believe, because it was only a 60-game season, then there was the playoffs, etc., etc. And just a really unfortunate thing to see. And it's unfortunate, really, that this topic would come back to light, but it's also rather appropriate because it does keep shining that light on the issue. Even if Herman, and I, I believe he's still with his wife, even if they have moved past it and resolved it, it is unfortunately a a topic that comes off comes up fairly often, especially in professional sports. And I'm not saying that it has to do with being an athlete, but unfortunately, it, it does seem fairly relatively commonplace within professional sports. Just very unfortunate to hear, but I'm I am glad that we are at least still addressing it. People are still addressing it and talking about it. Because I don't remember who it was exactly, but someone, some sort of commentator had brought up the the Kobe Bryant rape case not long after his death and was pretty much just put on blast for it, was criticized for it, which was uh, uh, vilified, really, albeit very briefly as public opinion swayed quite quickly. I mean, a lot of times public opinion can be, you know, not the smartest, depending on where it comes from, but it was just unfortunate that someone would be reamed for even mentioning that, albeit you'd have to bring it up in a more in a lighter sense, really really walk on eggshells, do it delicately in that particular situation. But it is important probably to note that. And when you look at Domingo Herman, when his career is done, when certain aspects of his life are done, you're, that's one thing you're going to look back to is his suspension and the reason for it in particular. And hopefully you look back and, and think, well, he's, he's reformed himself, and it seems perhaps he, perhaps he has. But this, from a professional standpoint, will be the pinnacle, most likely, or at, least, or at least so far in his career. He still has some years to go. But it's, it's just a very, very interesting case. As for the, the actual outing, Look, I know the Oakland A's are not remotely a strong team this year, and it's a, a fan base that unfortunately has been rather demoralized. I mean, God bless the A's fans for coming out and trying to keep the team in Oakland. I have said it was very unfair that the A's have to... Uh, now, to be fair, I think A's ownership is right to move the club out, but that's only because they submitted a proposal to the Oakland City Council as to how they would get a new ballpark, but not only that, would help refurbish the area where the ballpark is now, where Oakland Alameda County Coliseum is now, and where Oracle Arena is as well. And they, they wanted a new ballpark in Howard Terminal, and so they wanted to kind of help out the city, but they never got a response from the Oakland City Council. And so at that point, it makes perfect sense why you'd want to leave. But I'm glad that the fans would show up, but I digress here. As regardless of Oakland's lineup, again, there have only been 24 perfect games in the history of Major League Baseball in a span of, well, Major League Baseball has been around probably since at least the 1840s, but in Major League Baseball, the first perfect game was thrown in 1883. That's a span of 140 years where only 24 perfect games have been thrown. And so 
Even the worst lineups can manage to get on base at times. Most of the time, they can manage to get on base. And so it's an incredible achievement, not to mention Herman did it in under 100 pitches. And I have to say, this kind of restored my faith in baseball as a fan because, you know, I have said I like a, a lo fairly low-scoring defensive game, and I love when you can see a pitcher go the distance. And, you know, you've seen more combined no-hitters in recent years, and it's just there's not really a romanticism to it that you have from one pitcher going the distance. It's just because it seems more you know, commonplace, and it seems like, it seems more split up. It's nice to have multiple guys get that achievement, but it's different. It's it's a very, very different situation. And so the fact that someone could even throw a complete game, let alone a shutout, I've, of course I've been told that is a, that's a redundancy, complete game shutout, any shutout is a complete game. But to throw a perfect game, throw a complete game, no hitter, and to throw a complete game, perfect game. Because, again, for all the combined no-hitters there have been, no one has ever thrown a combined perfect game. And so to see that still exists in this day and age is really something cool for me as kind of an old-school baseball fan. This was the first perfect game in 11 years. I think it was King Felix in Seattle was the last one. And it's just funny to note that if you go to Wikipedia, and I would think this is probably correct, it's funny, this was a relatively short perfect game, but if you look at previous perfect games, even when the score was higher, hey, you look at Matt Cain's 10-0 perfect game when there was no pitch clock, it was still a rel relatively short game. I think that one clocked in at about 2 hours, 36 minutes. And so it really makes you think, you know, you can compare perfect games because really they're all the same. They're all perfect games. I know they're not... You know, every, I know they're not the average 5-4, you know, 10-9 slugfest. But you can compare them all, especially if you look at the score. And it's funny that you look at the times, the, the durations of those respective games. And it doesn't look that bad even 10 years ago. There were perfect games 11 years ago that were shorter than perfect games 40 or 50 years ago. And so it's just funny to note that really the issue with baseball slowing down hasn't been a long, long-running thing. It's probably more likely, and again, it's a sample size, but it's probably more likely been in the last decade or so. And we always said that about, I think Josh Beckett was first and foremost the one who, who took, you know, God knows how long between pitches. But it is true. It is true when you think about it, it and... The, the pitch, I will say, look, the pitch clock has helped. It's helped in Major League Baseball. I can certainly appreciate it when I'm working with the Blue Claws. And it's just a very, but it's, it is something to note that very, you know, it, baseball is still generally a defensive-minded game. And it is still a game that can be very short. And it's only gotten longer in very, very recent years. And so we can hopefully get to, uh, we have really gotten back to that place of, you know, the two and a half hour ball game. A couple more things to discuss. There is going to be the All-Star game upcoming in Seattle. It's going to be really cool. The Home Run Derby. We'll, we'll recap that next week as we talk about guys like Julio Rodriguez will try to win the Home Run Derby in front of his home crowd, which will be crazy. He really had his... He really emerged onto a national stage at the Home Run Derby last year. And so it'll be fun to watch. He's the first person, I think, of this year, especially because it's going to be tougher. No Aaron Judge this year, although we will have a lot of the great stalwarts in this league in terms of power. But another unfortunate thing is that Mike Trout has been placed on the 10-day IL with a left-hand fracture that makes him unavailable for the All-Star game. Angels dealing with more injuries. Then there were a couple of trades that were made this week that were interesting. The Royals trade Araldis Chapman to the Rangers for left-handed pitcher Cole Reagans and minor league outfielder Ronnie Cabrera. The Mets also trade Zach Muckenhern, left-handed pitcher, to Seattle for right-handed pitchers Trevor Gott and Chris Flexen, the latter of whom was actually released despite having kind of a good background. 
Gott is somebody the Mets need more so for a very struggling bullpen that has probably been one of the biggest causes for their, in many ways, demise over the last couple of months as they have really, really struggled. But the one of the big things this week, really probably our, our overarching story for the week, would be NHL free agency. We'll talk a little bit about the draft. I mean, if you are... If you're new to the show, we're not going to go in any particular order in terms of team necessarily. Just going to try to keep it to each team, keep all the news to each team. And we'll talk a little bit about the draft at the end. So we'll start with Toronto Maple Leafs, the team that has waited 56 years now, the longest drought in Stanley Cup history. They signed Tyler Bertuzzi to a one-year deal. He had 30 points in 50 games last season. In addition... They bring home a relatively familiar face, Max Domi, who signs a one-year $3 million deal after a 56-point season with the Stars and the Blackhawks. His dad, of course, Ty Domi, iconic, you know, great, maybe the, the greatest fighter in history despite his size, played over 700 games in Toronto, close to, I think, about two-thirds of his career at least, with the Leafs. Really, an icon for for Leafs fans in the last thirty years or so. But funny to think his son does have a little bit of fighting ability, but he's probably more for this age. He's a, more, a much more skilled player, and so that's a big addition for them. And at three million a year, that's not awful, I would say. They also sign somebody who really can fight more, Ryan Reeves. Three years, $4.05 million, a guy who can contribute and play in the corners on the fourth line. Very physical. And a guy who has been the cup final before with Vegas back in 2018. They also bring in John Klingberg at one year for $4.15 million. One-year deals are going to be a little bit of a theme, I would say, in this conversation here. Klingberg was... Really a huge a huge presence in Dallas in particular. Went to Anaheim. Of course, the Ducks did not have a fine year. Has kind of bounced around a little bit. But that's a good signing. Dylan Gambrell, one year, 775K. In addition, Ryan O'Reilly signs a four-year deal with the Nashville Predators. Jumps within the division, or, or is within the central division again, rather, Won the Conn Smythe Trophy back in 2019, has 702 career points. He is an outstanding defensive forward, great two-way forward, an excellent leader, and someone Nashville could really use. This is a team that has been, that is maybe a little bit lacking in veteran leadership with some of the departures they've had, the, the loss of, of Pecorino in the last couple of years, and you know, just a lot of the guys from that 17 team. And just from a, an actual hockey standpoint, it's a huge deal. He is one of the best two-way centers in the game. It's it's a really good signing for Nashville. They usually don't get – he's a little – maybe a little past his prime now, but Nashville doesn't usually pick up guys this significant in free agency. Ilya Sorokin signs an eight-year deal to stay on the island with the Islanders after being named a finalist for the Vezina Trophy last season. I remember reading the hockey news and seeing for a while that, at least on that site, that publication, he was considered actually a potential Hart Trophy finalist and Vezina winner, which I, I think is a little bit of a stretch, to be fair, because you know Linus Allmark, of course, ended up winning the Vezina, and had a fine season. But there was the comparison that the Bruins had a better system in place than the Islanders did. I would say they have a similar, they both have a similar system. I think the Bruins, I think, are just a little more offensive-minded and on the forecheck and do have a little more firepower up front with the perfection line. But... That, that doesn't take away from the fact that Sorokin, as a matter of fact, it adds to the fact that Sorokin is a fine goaltender. He is a franchise goaltender. He's proven that very early on in an Islander uniform. 
and for how defensive their structure has been with Lou Lamarillo as their GM, with originally Barry Trotz and Elaine Lambert as their coach, Ilya Sorokin will be as important as anyone in that lineup, possible exception being Matt Barzal. But you know, as as they figured out with John Tavares' departure, you know, guys can be replaced. Perhaps by a collective effort, but guys can be replaced. The Islanders also do make some interesting signings for the first time in that they bring in Julien Gauthier, former Ranger. So that is something of note to a two-year deal. He's a guy who is not a high-scoring forward, but I think has a lot more skill than people might realize. Did not get a lot of playing time with the Rangers necessarily, and I think is capable of a lot more but he could work well within that structure with the Islanders as a depth forward. But someone who can bring a little skill, he's, he's, he has a little more power as well and, and size. Carson Kuhlman's another guy they got, a one-year, two-way deal for his career with Boston, Seattle, and Winnipeg. 147 games, 12 goals, 18 assists, 30 points. A little more workmanlike and fits in probably better with the Islanders' structure. The Pittsburgh Penguins... Made a couple of fascinating deals. The The first one was they signed Tristan Jari to a five-year deal worth over $5 million a year. And I know Tristan Jari is, I think at his ceiling, very a very, very capable goaltender. Very good, but, you know, it, with his injury history and he's been a little inconsistent at times, a five-year deal might be... A little excessive, maybe for that money, maybe that money too is a little excessive. I think maybe they're the Penguins are trying to find that overlap and trying to find that guy who can bridge the gap between. I mean, we'll see how long the Crosby, Malkin, Latang, most notably, grouping will play, but it's just. You know, I think Crosby said he will play at least, I believe now, two more years. But, you know, I, we'll, we'll see. He's a guy with an injury history. All of those guys have injury histories, of course. And, you know, I mean, we'll see how long that lasts. But I think Jari could be kind of the bridge between this era of Penguins hockey and the next era of Penguins hockey. And that, that maybe they want just a more consistent presence within the organization because there has been a lot of roster turnover in the last, got five, six years probably in particular. I mean, they have not gotten out of the first round in five years. They have not gotten out of the second round since winning back in 2017. But, you know, Jari could be kind of the holdover. And that would give him a, a longer tenure in Pittsburgh, if he doesn't have it already, a longer tenure in Pittsburgh than Matt Murray, who was as crucial as maybe anyone in a Penguins uniform for, uh, seriously, including Crosby or, or Malkin, perhaps, for those for those last two cup runs. And, of course, it didn't work out with him in Ottawa, but Jari has been a little more consistent in Pittsburgh than Murray was in Ottawa, not to entirely make comparisons, of course, and it's so difficult considering the success Marc-Andre Fleury has had since being traded from Pittsburgh, but it's just an interesting note. They do get a couple of really good depth signings. Nola Chari is one. They signed him to a three-year deal, a guy who's really played, bounced around the league, but he's been a fine forward wherever he's been. Also, Ryan Graves who is a solid defensive defenseman, could be a top-pairing top guy maybe, top-four top defenseman probably. Very good defensive defenseman, but also not bad on the front end either. Had 26 points with the Devils last year. They signed him to a six-year deal worth $4.5 million a year. Perhaps the coolest thing about this signing, actually, it should be noted that Ryan Graves grew up with Nathan McKinnon and which in essence, you know, of course implies, and it's true, 
Like Sidney Crosby, Ryan Graves is a native of Nova Scotia, which is not necessarily the most common of the hockey provinces. So just something kind of cool to note if you're a Pens fan in particular, or if you hail from, what is it? I think it's the Latin for New Scotland. On the West Coast, the Anaheim Ducks signed Alex Kalorn to a four-year deal after the longtime Bolt finished with career highs in goals and points last season. He is a guy who was really a part of that core with Tampa, and not just for the two Cup winners, and of course the team that that went to the conference that went to the final against the Avalanche in 2022, but also remember he was fairly young guy for the team that went to the final in 2015. He scored a goal in Game 7 at Madison Square. I believe the game-winning goal, the conference-winning goal, as a matter of fact, at Madison Square Garden in Game 7 in 2015. And so a guy who is very important, of course, he had to step up a bit with a little bit of a loss in depth for Tampa Bay this year. Helped lead them to two Cup titles and four Eastern Conference titles. Anaheim has done a lot of work through free agency, and I don't. We'll see if it eventually works out. It hasn't. You know, I mentioned John Klingberg earlier, and brought in guys like Frank Vetrano, Ryan Strom. Hasn't really worked out to this point. They had Kevin Shattenkirk for a time, but you know, we'll also mention their their high draft pick soon. So just interesting to note there with Anaheim, the Nashville Predators buy out Matt Duchesne who in turn signs a one-year deal with the Dallas Stars. I have said for a while that I think Duchesne is, yeah, I know he didn't really play up to expectations, but is still a very, very strong player. Not a bad postseason performer. I think he did prove that in Columbus, for one. Nashville's another one. And not a bad signing for for Dallas for a one-year deal. Dimitri, Dimitri Orlov, who is a very skilled defenseman, and very underappreciated for what he did for Washington. Signs a two-year deal with the Carolina Hurricanes, a more offensive-minded defenseman who can still work on the back end and work well in that structure, but they do need scorers. And so that was a move that will fit pretty pretty well. It looks like it looks like Vladimir Tarasenko is going to be heading there as well, and he's a guy who might be perfect for them. Speaking of Vladimir Tarasenko, as a matter of fact, we'll go into a little bit of a deep dive on the Rangers' mini-spending spree, literally a a mini-spending spree, because they've signed a lot of guys to one-year, almost minimum deals. And honestly, Chris Drury, I think, had a better off-season, or at least so far, than he did a trade deadline. Considering, I mean, you know, you also adapt to the coach, but considering how things did not work out with Gerard Gallant, in addition to Patrick Kane and Vladimir Tarasenko, and how they could not really play a north-south brand of hockey. Now, I said that Kane was the guy, the only guy who was really shooting for rebounds on Akira Schmid when he came into that series and turned the thing around completely. But the Rangers did not need more skill. They needed grinders more. And that's... A lot of what they got. They got former Caps D-man Eric Gustafson for one year at 825k. They got Nick Bonino, a guy who certainly has playoff experience, a Connecticut native, I did not realize, and a center, which is you know, something they always need. One year, $800,000. Tyler Pitlick, guy who's kind of bounced around the league, another center, as a matter of fact. One year, $785,000. This one not as significant from a a hockey standpoint, really, because it's a backup goaltender, but Jonathan Quick, former King and Golden Knight, now a three-time cup winner and a childhood Ranger fan, as a matter of fact, Connecticut native, one-year deal, 825K, that would be cheaper than if they brought back Yaroslav Halak. And, you know, you can afford to spend a little less with a backup goaltender, I think. It's a nice luxury to have. And Jonathan Quick is still capable of being a backup goaltender. But I think he's finally acknowledged that with this signing and just kind kind of riding out the rest of his NHL career, probably fulfilling a childhood dream by playing with the Rangers organization. And you can, you'll, you'll see what he'll be able to do, perhaps. 
And last but not least, American-born former Jets captain. The Winnipeg Jets' former captain, their all-time franchise-leading scorer, at least for the new Winnipeg Jets, including the Atlanta Thrashers, and a former American Olympian right-winger Blake Wheeler, a guy who can play on the third or fourth line, does provide a little scoring, but is a good two-way forward, one year, only 800K. I know he's a little more on in years, but this is still a... This was a great offseason for the Rangers with the limited money they had. Chris Drury really stepped above expectations and kind of went around expectations in a way by signing a lot of these lower-level guys, not even lower-level guys, these guys who are role players. They're depth guys. And, you know, you look at... I'm going to mention the, the Devils made some... Big signings, of course. They locked up Timo Meyer for eight years. They traded for Toffoli, and they will have a top six that rivals that of maybe anyone in the league. And I, I say this because the Devils were the one team that really outplayed the Rangers consistently in the regular season. But uh, just talking from a local hockey standpoint for both these teams, so it's funny. The Devils will definitely have a better top six, when you, and especially when you consider that Kane and Tarasenko, Tarasenko for sure, Kane probably as well, will be gone from the Rangers. But the Rangers found depth. Devils lost their depth perhaps a little bit. And so the Rangers did not construct this roster for consistent high scoring. No, they, consist, they constructed this for a postseason roster. And it's funny, that's, that is old Devils hockey. When you look at a lot of those guys, a lot of those guys, most of those guys were not superstars. Very workmanlike. When you go back to their two, their cup teams in 95, 2003, and I said it, it's funny, the Rangers were playing to the Devils' old style in the first couple of games to shut down a more offensive-minded team. And the roles have kind of flipped, not that the Rangers can't play, couldn't always play defensive-minded hockey, and the Devils couldn't play somewhat offensive-minded hockey, but the roles kind of reversed in the playoffs this year, and it's just very interesting to see, especially with uh, with the, the money, the amount of spending as well. But it does also give the Rangers a lot of freedom to re-sign Alexi Lafreniere long-term and to re-sign Keandre Miller long-term. The Boston Bruins... Brought in some fairly big names, guys who are maybe a little older, but guys who are big names. And they also, trying to play playoff hockey, getting experienced guys. That's what they didn't quite have last year, obviously, getting out of the first round. Not as much experience in terms of guys who have won the cup or been to a final after that top line. But they got it. They brought back Milan Lucic who was just a, you know, a hero for Boston when they won the Cup back in 2011, and a hero for them for many years, was one of the guys who scored one of the late goals in the comeback against the Leafs in Game 7, a, a time when the city really needed it after the Boston Marathon bombing, capped off, of course, by the Patrice Bergeron goal. But a guy was a huge piece of their core for many years. And... Although it didn't really work out for him in a couple of places, Edmonton, Calgary, he is beloved in Boston. He's one of those guys where, hey, if you're if you're a big fan, you might you might hate him unless he's on your team. And so maybe that energy can 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 reignite this Bruins organization. They also bring in James Van Riemsdyk, which is another fascinating signing, a guy who's bounced around, went to and from Philadelphia, has played all over the place from the Northeast. Morgan Geeky, a guy who was big in Carolina, play, played some time in Seattle. And Kevin Shattenkirk, a guy who can work a little bit on special teams at both ends, maybe a little more on the power play. guy who won the Cup in Tampa, scored a cup-clinching goal against the Dallas Stars in the bubble. And a guy who can really maybe hold the blue line and work more for the power play for Boston. Jonas Corposalo signs a five-year deal with the Ottawa Senators, a team that had really struggled with goaltending. When I had mentioned they had signed Matt Murray to that significant deal, 
did not play up to expectations, nor did the team necessarily, but he did not either. It's a team that picked up a little bit in the last year or so. I had said this about, obviously, the Devils especially advanced because they found goaltending and they found defense more so. But Ottawa, Buffalo, even Detroit to an extent are some of these teams that really picked up. And Corpus Salo could be a big pickup for them, and they could be a fringe playoff team this year. I, I think that now that they have they've established leadership with Kachuk, they've got skill. Stutzla is another guy who's serious. They've got uh, Giroux's another leader, but an Ottawa team that has certainly gotten better and stronger in the last year or so, where they could make a playoff push. The defending Stanley Cup champion Vegas Golden Knights sign Aiden Hill, understandably, to a two-year deal. This is a guy who was playing as a backup in San Jose and was thrust into the spotlight with several injuries for Vegas, be it Brossois, Thompson. You had, they didn't really even give Quick the opportunity, and they turned to Hill. And while that, that team is pretty just turned out to be the deepest, I suppose, and got the best matchups. Aiden Hill stood up to the task. And if he had played more games in this postseason, if if he had entered the postseason if he had been you know forced to start sooner, he very well could have won the Conn Smythe trophy. Played very well any given night. And was crucial to their success. So well earned and and really cool kind of underdog story going from a backup to a cup winner as a starter. Tampa Bay Lightning trade Corey Perry to the Chicago Blackhawks for a pick in 2024. Obviously, you know, you kind of saw it this year with Tampa Bay, and you see it now with Kalorn, but once you heard on the public address the Lightning get knocked out by the Leafs, and you heard the public address announcer pretty much say, oh, it's been a great, decade of two cup titles, four Eastern Conference titles, etc., etc., and you thought, maybe this is the time where they're going to start to break down. And Corey Perry, in the last two years, was a rather important piece. He's a bit of an instigator still, obviously, but he plays still at a decent level. It's just unfortunate for him that he had sort of this Marion Hosa situation without that cup finish. He's a guy who's won the cup before, but you know it's been a while. I think it was his rookie year when he won in Anaheim, but Dallas didn't win and then lost to Tampa with Montreal and lost with Tampa to Colorado. And this year did not even get out of the first round. So really something interesting as he heads to Chicago, a, a really a rebuilding team. Speaking of veterans getting traded, the Islanders trade Josh Bailey, a 14-year veteran with the organization, had only played with the Islanders. He was traded along with a 2026 draft pick to the Blackhawks for future considerations. And this is really a salary dump because the Blackhawks are expected to buy him out, a guy who was, I think, came in same year as John Tavares, if memory serves me correctly. Of course, never played at that skill level, but was always a huge leader and a huge member of the organization, a team that has been a, within the last five years at least, a consistent cup contender. Maybe on the outside looking in more so in the last couple of years, but a very well-built team, and he was very crucial to that success. Excellent playoff player. Speaking of which, Mark Stahl signs a one-year deal with the Philadelphia Flyers, reuniting him with John Tortorella. You can only speculate now as to what will become of Eric Stahl's NHL career, as, of course, they spent some time together, got to a cup final together this year, but I'm not quite sure. It's the second time they've been together for only a season or less as they were when Eric was briefly with the Rangers in 2016, if memory serves me correctly. But Stahl was a crucial piece of Tortorella's Ranger teams. Of course, those teams were predicated on shot blocking. Really just 
collapse, defensive collapsing and shot blocking. Very low scoring games. Mark Stahl, along with Dan Girardi, a real stand-up physical defenseman, a real top pair guy. Clearly not that guy necessarily anymore. Well over 15 years now in this league, but clearly a guy who can do, still do some things very well, still can hold that leadership role, and that's something the Flyers will very much need. JT Confer sends a five-year, $25.5 million deal with Detroit after a career-high 52-point year in Colorado. He's a Chicago native, so not too far away. Played at the University of Michigan, definitely not too far away. And so that's a, a good signing, a guy who's won the Cup before. Detroit signs Shane Gostisbehere as well to a one-year $4.125 million deal. Good investment for his age, 30, what he has been in the past. Daniel Sprung, another guy who's bounced around, played well in Pittsburgh and Washington as a depth guy, one year, two million. James Reimer, one year, one and a half million. Another goaltender who has worked his way around the league, made the playoffs several times, and could be an asset for Detroit, more likely as a backup goaltender. Miles Woods signs a six year deal with the Colorado Avalanche, who also sign Jonathan Druen and Andrew Cogliano. In addition to bringing back Bowen Byram, first three guys, or rather the first two guys, Drew Ann and Cagliano for one year each, Bowen Byram for two years. All good depth pieces. Drew Ann with about a half point a game last year in a, a relatively shortened season for him, 58 games, two goals, 27 assists, 29 points. Has worked well in Tampa, worked well in Montreal, played deep in the postseason. Andrew Cagliano, of course, a guy who for a long time had the Ironman record. And so a lot of veteran leadership and physical endurance coming through there. Colorado signing guys who are making well for postseason hockey and making a significant investment in Miles Wood in particular for, for six seasons. They also acquire Ross Colton in exchange for a second rounder. He is a restricted free agent, so it is a little bit of a risk, but you can expect that he will sign with the Avalanche. Evan Rodriguez signs a four-year deal with Florida. Last season with Colorado, 69 games played, 16 goals, 23 assists, 39 points. Not a bad signing. He's played, he played well in the postseason two years ago with Pittsburgh in their first-round series against the Rangers. And even before that, guy who has skill on the top line with Buffalo. One thing that was really interesting to note that Rodriguez said it was a good fit because of the system. Because he said he likes being the quick guy and being the first guy on the forecheck which is something that is crucial to Florida's identity. They do trade Anthony Duclair, which pretty much freed them up for Rodriguez, to San Jose for Steven Lorenz and a fifth rounder. Only one year left on Duclair's deal before he becomes an unrestricted free agent. Of course, Florida only has so much money, and so this is a good kind of value signing by comparison. Florida also signs Oliver ekman Larson. They re-up Dmitry Kulikov and Mike Riley, and goaltender Anthony Stolarz, two one-year deals each. They signed Grigory Denisenko to a two-year deal. Obviously, that shows they have some faith in him. He made his playoff debut in the Stanley Cup Final, replacing Matthew Kachuk, who, of course, left due to injury. Despite the fact he had been playing with their AHL affiliate for the few months previously, they signed him to a two-year deal which shows that they do have some faith in him to fill out that roster. And they also signed a good defensive defenseman with, you know, not a bad shot in Nico Mikola to a three-year deal. You know, we're going to move towards kind of the head coaching and front office, and then we'll talk a little bit about the draft, or at least the early picks. But, you know, it's funny. I recently finished watching Barry... I won't spoil anything. It's a great show. But I was maybe I was maybe a few weeks behind everyone else or who watched it, I think, live. But it's funny because there was an episode in that last season called Tricky Legacies. It's kind of what you see in television. It's where a lot of the best television, if you watch The Sopranos, The Wire, Breaking Bad, Barry is, is a show like that where... It's so good because the characters are so 
complex, where you can't really tell, are they a good person or are they a bad person? And the episode's called Tricky Legacies, which is almost the definition of the show, or the definition of great tele of really the best quality of television. And it's rather interesting art imitating life in a sense. Not that, you know, anyone's a, a, a killer or a hitman or anything like that, or certainly not an acting hitman, but tricky legacies is probably a good, probably a good newspaper headline for what the Columbus Blue Jackets did this week. And that's named Mike Babcock, their next head coach replacing Brad Larson because Babcock has been accused of just being verbally abusive toward his players. This is at a time when accusations were leveled against Bob Hartley as well for not just that, Bob Hartley for that and for accusations of racism. And it cost these guys their jobs. Not to say it wasn't deserved necessarily, but the, the, the point stands. And this is kind of an ill-advised hire. Mike Babcock is a smart hockey guy. Took Anaheim to the final, won the cup in Detroit, maybe underperformed in Toronto. And from a hockey standpoint, it's not a bad hiring. The same would go for someone hiring Bob Hartley, perhaps, or hiring Joel Quenville, who, of course, has had his own issues. But I don't know. I don't. I don't think this was necessarily the right decision for Columbus. All will be forgiven among the fan base if he wins. If he takes them where they haven't gone before. They have they've never gotten past the second round. And it's you, you just wonder what's going through that organization's mind. I mean, I know John Davidson is back there in Columbus, a guy who's you know just a hockey lifer, very smart guy. But this is a bit of a risky move. Should also tell you that Columbus really is all in to try to win, that they're going outside of that coaching carousel, though. Jim Nill wins general manager of the year after leading the Stars to the Western Conference final, securing Jake Ottinger, and just really implementing a good system, a good defensive structure. Ottinger didn't really play up to standards this year. They were my pick to win the Cup, but... I think to it's kind of kind of emblematic of Florida and Tampa, Carolina, a lot of these places in the South, and it's rather appropriate as well when when you consider David Poyle, who was so wonderfully honored by the National Hockey League this week in Nashville for his forty some odd years of service to the National Hockey League as a general manager in Washington and then in Nashville. It's rather appropriate that someone who has led a Southern team, a Southern United States team, as the general manager would win this award. Speaking of the draft, we'll talk about the top three picks. Connor Bedard, of course, of course going first overall to the Blackhawks, finished with 143 points for Regina in the Western Hockey League. The most touted prospect, perhaps since Connor McDavid, huge win. Anaheim. A lot of people said Adam Fantilli would be the number two pick. He was not. He was taken third by Columbus. That's an interesting pick, which we will talk about in a moment. But first off, Anaheim ended up taking Leo Carlson, a center from Sweden, at number two. He's the top-ranked international skater, has a, a skill set like that of Fantilli, but may have to build some muscle. I noticed on the broadcast of the draft that Kevin Weeks hypothesized GM Pat Verbeek selected him because of Verbeek's years in Detroit, where the Red Wings developed just several big-name Swedish players. For example, Nick Lidstrom, who is, in my opinion, probably a top three, maybe, defenseman all-time. Henrik Zetterberg, Johan Franzen, Thomas Holmstrom, Nicholas Cronwall, goes on and on and on. But it should still be a good pick once they get him into their, their, their training system. Columbus picks Adam Fantilli from Michigan at number three. Very funny, very interesting that he is a guy from the University of Michigan and he's going to play in Ohio State country. But a guy who has very much performed at the collegiate level has very family-oriented, very Italian, which I'm happy to see, 
and he should be a good pickup, an excellent skill player. Moving on to the NBA, James Harden picks up his $35.6 million option with the Sixers, but will explore trade scenarios with the organization. Could be heading to, they hypothesized the Knicks for a moment, but that seems unlikely, and that would probably be bad for them anyway, considering you know what, what a media mess he has been, been a part of. But a couple different places were hypothesized. Josh Hart exercises a $12.9 million option to stay with the Knicks. Maybe he could be part of a deal if that were to happen. Knicks did a couple other things. They traded Obi Toppin to the Indiana Pacers for a pair of second-rounders, which is unfortunate for Knicks fans and unfortunate for Toppin, a New York native, but he will be able to get more playing time. He did not get as much playing time as he probably should have under Tom Thibodeau. And they get a decent return. He'll get a lot more playing time in Indiana, which is still a decent decent team, and we'll be able to see what his ceiling really is. Dante DiVincenzo, on the other hand, another Nova guy, signs a four-year, $50 million deal with the Knicks after averaging 9.4 points a game last season for Milwaukee off the bench, joins with Jalen Brunson and Josh Hart, former Nova guys with the Knicks. Derek Rose, who of course played with his hometown team in Chicago for many years, went to the Knicks and came back to the Knicks, was beloved there, and he goes to another place where he's very beloved, and that's Memphis. Returns to play for a Memphis-based team for the first time since he played for the University of Memphis in his lone year of college when he helped take them to the national championship game before a heartbreaking loss against Kansas. He signs a two-year deal with the Grizzlies, a guy with a lot of veteran leadership, a guy who still has, who didn't really play much for the Knicks this year, still has, could instill leadership, you would hope, if you're a Grizzlies fan, and some maturity, which Rose has clearly found. Of course, he had the, the test-taking scandal early on in his career and that whole thing with, with him leaving Memphis, but he's a guy who's really grown up, and maybe he could show some of that to Ja Morant if and when he returns. Well, if, when he retur- when he returns from suspension. So it's not a bad signing for the Grizzlies because he's rested and he'll be able to play at a higher level as, as a second-string guy, probably. Kyrie Irving signs a three-year, $126 million deal to stay in Dallas. Odds are they'll need another guy, I think, to compete for a championship. But, you know, it also depends on what Kyrie's going to do off the floor. Uh, Apparently he's been okay so far in Dallas. We'll see how long it lasts. The Hornets and LaMelo Ball are finalizing a five-year, $260 million extension, finished with over 23 points a game, over six rebounds a game, over eight assists a game, and over a steal a game. Only 36 games played, so it was despite an injury, but he's still performed at a high level when he did play. It was a very complete player. The Hornets need to build around him, but it's a max contract. They'll need to do something on a fairly limited budget. Anthony Edwards is finalizing an also a five-year extension for the same money with the Timberwolves. He averaged nearly 25 points a game in the regular season and nearly 32 a game in the first round loss to Denver. Like LaMelo Ball, a very complete player, but he is locked in to his contract as well as Carl Anthony Towns and Rudy Gobert. Minnesota is more, I'm not going to say championship ready, but much more playoff ready for sure. Only nine players in the league with as many points, rebounds, and assists last season as Edwards. A couple more things before we leave. First off, Michelle Wee West will end her 18-year competitive professional career this week after the U.S. Open. And that will mark the end to a fairly successful career. Of course, you know, it's overshadowed by how young she played. And, you know, maybe her, her career is cut off a bit soon because she's become a mother. And that's kind of taken away some time as it as it should to, to an extent, of course. But that was a significant factor. She turned pro in 2005 at age 16 but still attended Stanford solely as a student without being eligible for uh, collegiate golf. It, it should be noted, you know, she's won one major and she's perhaps more 
marketable, I guess, than, than some athletes or, or, or some female golfers. She's, you know, you could say, or she's gotten more attention than what her results might indicate, but it's really beyond how many majors she's won. It's how young she joined and how she, how successful she was at a young age. And then it's more difficult being a female athlete if you're going to have a child. That's a huge thing. It's not necessarily fair, but it's the case. It's true. Regardless of the physical aspect, even just moving away from work, unfortunately, it's it's still a difficult thing to do. It's a difficult thing for fathers to do as well, but it's probably more difficult for mothers. And, you know, you see this in a lot in, in women's professional sports where they, they'll step away from the game for extended periods of time, if not for the remainder of their career because of motherhood. And it's a sacrifice. Very hard to have at all. She joined the LPGA Tour in 2009 when she was first eligible. And she is only one of five women. This is another thing that's a huge mark for her career. She's one of only five women to play in men's PGA Tour events. Joining a list that includes Annika Sorenstam and Babe Didrikson Zaharias, who, if you don't know, is perhaps the most complete female athlete, if not athlete in total, ever. I, I would say her closest comparison to a man, if we're, if we're going to do that, would be Jim Thorpe. And, and so it's really an impressive, exclusive list. Wee West was also the first woman to, is the first woman to ever qualify for a generally male USGA event, doing so at age 15. She played in several men's tournaments prior to joining the LPGA Tour, and although she didn't make the cut in any, it still is a sign of perseverance, persistence, and strength. Strength and a lot of faith to to do these things. And it shouldn't really say anything about the differences between men and women in sports. But the fact that she could compete at a level with men or on and on the same playing field with men is more impressive when you consider the company that she has been in, male or female. She also won again, you talk about her age. She won the U.S. Women's Amateur Public Links at age 13. Truly a remarkable career, and she'll continue to make an impact in the sport. Now, on a very different note, and kind of on the edge of the term sports, in this sense, Joey Chestnut finishes with 62 hot dogs in securing his 16th Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest title. After a two-plus-hour rain delay, there was a, I suppose, phony report that it was going to be canceled completely, first due to lightning and then due to rain. And it was funny because you consider they've done it indoors before. During COVID, they did it indoors. And if COVID wouldn't stop you, you wouldn't understand why weather would, or at least you know a basic thunderstorm. And so ultimately it was done. Mickey Sudo wins the title yet again. And just two of the finest to do it. It was, it was important that it did ultimately happen. I was really disappointed for a moment that it wasn't going to happen, that I thought it was not going to happen because I was very much looking forward to it. Glad it ultimately did take place. And just another incredible run for Joey Chestnut. I know it's, you know, the word athlete can be kind of a stretch when it comes to competitive eating. I would still consider it athleticism loosely because of the, the feats that, that are necessary, the stamina, the, the patience, the physical endurance that is necessary. It's very different, but it, it does 
play into a lot of the rest of the logistics of sports. And so he, in that sense, he is, and she is, one of the great athletes, one of the great competitors of all time. That does it for us this week. I thank you so much for your time. Wish you a happy belated fourth. Wish you happy health and safety as it gets hotter this summer. And encourage you, again, please continue listening and, and continue spreading the word as we try to put people on notice about this podcast. Actually, quick shout out before we go. I work for as a volunteer for a Facebook group that talks about Seton Hall Pirates men's basketball. I'm a moderator in the group, and I am very grateful to Patrick McCrossin for allowing me to promote the podcast in the group. And hopefully, if you are a member of the group, you speak often. Hopefully you'll listen to this and, and spread this around. And I'm also appreciative to Nicole Gizzy, who's another moderator in the group, for designing our new logo. You may notice we have a new logo for the podcast. And she actually did this without me even asking. So that was very, very kind. And I'm very appreciative to her and to Patrick and, and to all my friends and family for helping us stay on the air here for, or stay, oh, that's one way to put it, on the air, I guess to put this out in the world for the last three years or so and hopefully keep it out for as long as it needs to to be available. So thank you very much for your time and we'll see you next week on Sports in the Waiting Room.